a song in too as well. Of course, that's an old one, and I know that you all know it. So the reason why you didn't have words because it wasn't planned. Um, but again, I knew that you all knew that. So I like throwing those in from time to time. First John chapter five. Now, if this wasn't a difficult book to teach already, so this is my disclaimer. This is probably the most difficult passage in this entire book. And uh, first of all, there, there isn't a great reference to understanding what the water and the blood is. We'll read it in just a second. Also, there's some difference in manuscripts that I least want you to be aware of. One of uh, in the King James and the New King, King James is different than any of the other uh, versions. And there's some reasons for that. But let's, let's jump into this. I'll just read it to you and then uh, have some comments about it. First John chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. For that is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. And he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to receive this openly and and to consider it is that you are attempting to share with us this morning. Lord, we confess that this is a timely word. And so we want to not only receive it, but we ask, Lord, too, that even as we go and go into our week, that we would live this. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. This is a tough one, as I said. Matter of fact, I'm about ready to say, well, this is really hard. I don't really understand it. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. We'll do some more worship. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but it, it is a difficult one um, for a lot of reasons. The first reason is, is what, what in the world is going on here where, where Jesus is talking about the blood and the water being a witness? Now, I should have worn my T-shirt this morning. Because if you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Because if there was ever a, an area where your mileage may vary, your mileage may vary here. And so you have to, to work through this and think through this and, 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 um, and ask maybe for the Lord to even give you greater clarity at some point, but, uh, which I've already done. And I'm still standing in front of you today going, I'm not really sure what this all means. But nonetheless, I'm going to give you my best shot. How's that? Will that work? 
Okay. So what you have here is, is that this is he, that is Jesus, verse 6, who came by water and blood, not only by water, but water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So, um, so much here really to say even. There's, there's so many things running around through my head in this. It, it says here that, that Jesus came by water and blood. And, and, and yet the Spirit is the one who bears witness. Now, the water and blood could mean several different things. It could mean several different things. Now, we think about Jesus... Matter of fact, let's have a little bit of fun on this. When you think about Jesus and you think about water and blood, is there a particular instance in the Gospels that might come to your mind? Some of you are shaking your head. I know you don't want to speak out, and so I will do it for you, and you can nod your head yes or no if, if, I'm, if I'm agreeing with you. How's that? No, when Jesus was crucified, John 19, all right, remember that they wanted to break the legs of the three that were on the cross, why? Because it was about to enter, they were about to enter into Passover and they did not want to defile the land by having these bodies hanging on a tree, which would be a curse. See, the Jewish law is really involved in this. And so they went through and they broke their legs because if they broke their legs, then they would not have the strength to stand up and get a breath. So they would essentially suffocate. So when they came to Jesus, do you remember what happened in John? He had already dismissed his spirit. So they did not break his legs, fulfilling what the prophet said, that not a, a leg of his, not a bone of his would be broken. You have this fulfillment of prophecy in, in that, that John is very clear to point out in John 19. But what did they do instead? What did the Roman soldier do instead? I don't know why he even did this. Plunged the spear into his side, and out came what? Water and blood. Out came water and blood. Perhaps this is the testimony, and, and Clay uh, would have to weigh in on this because he's an MD, but, but perhaps this is a, a, a and I've, I've heard this, I'm not so sure this is true, or it could actually be an urban myth, but this idea of water and blood could uh, refer to the fact, or the idea that Jesus may have actually died of a broken heart. Uh, with the, the sack that surrounds the heart, which I, you know, quite frankly, I hear this from people who aren't doctors, right? And so uh, that is a possibility. Um, we don't really know because Jesus gave up his spirit, remember. He dismissed his spirit. Remember, he said that no man has the power to lay down, take my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down, and I also have the power to do what? Raise it up again. So what's fascinating to me is that even on the cross, Jesus is in complete control. Even as he is dying for our sins, he is still in complete control. They, they, they stick a spear in his side, and out for, uh, uh, flows water and blood. And this could be what John is referring to, because again, in John 19, verses 34 and 35, we won't take the time to look at it this morning, but he makes a very big deal about this, Okay. He's emphasizing this, as, and he's saying, I'm testifying to this, that it is true. It truly happened. And interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit, much later in John's ministry, has him write about water and blood. Whether he's referring to this scenario or not is unclear. So, um, but it, it's, it's this, this testimony that also could have been the water at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which took place where and how and what? The River Jordan, 
when Jesus was baptized. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And, and so Jesus is raised up out of the water. And what happens? Come on, you guys know this. The Father speaks. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, what else happens? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and, and stays on him in the form of a dove. So you have the, this, the, the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit coming in the form of the dove, and God the Son being raised up out of the water as a demonstration of his obedience to the will of the Father to, uh, to do the work of our atonement. That could be a reference to the water. It could be. Um, so then you would still need a reference to the blood, which would be at the end of his ministry. And of course, the, the blood would refer to what? His crucifixion. The blood would refer to his crucifixion. Now, in the book of John, chapter 12, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the Father speaks. And he says, I, and he says, I have both glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And the Father speaks audibly. If you remember that story, it's interesting because some, some people thought, oh, it's just thunder. Some people thought, oh, it's just, it's just an angel must have said that. And they really weren't sure what to do with this. But here you have Jesus who, Mark tells us, he had set his face like flint. I like that phrase. We should use that again. I set my face like flint. I'm determined, right? And, and, and Mark tells us that as he went to Jerusalem, uh, he, he had this determination to go and to do the work of atonement that he had been called to do. Because in that work of atonement, what happens? You and I are delivered. You and I are delivered. And, and, and the Father and the Son have this, this sense of determination that the blood of Jesus Christ must be shed. Hebrews tells us that he goes in and he offers up his blood in a holy of holy not made with hands. In other words, that heavenly place, he went and offered up his blood as an offering for sin once and for all. And as I thought about this, this determination of God to do the work of our salvation, it told me two things, bad news and good news. As a matter of fact, when I pulled up this morning, I was asked, you want to hear the bad news or the good news first? And so I flipped a coin, imaginary, and I went with the bad. Um, but it wasn't that bad. But uh, anyway, Jesus had such a sense of determination of doing this work of atonement, it told me two things about us. Okay, bad news. I'm going to give you the bad news first. You are so much more sinful than you even know. Well, that isn't a lot of fun to hear. I mean, I don't like saying it. Of course, I actually kind of enjoy saying it just for a second until I saw some of the expressions on your eyes. But you know what? You are so much more loved by God than you even realize. And to me, it's like, thank God. Because I don't know about you, but I tend to think that I'm kind of sinful. All right? Now, I think that some of you are too, okay? Uh, of course, that's not my problem. That's not my business, all right? I tend to think that I am kind of sinful. And knowing humanity, I tend to think we all are, but I don't think we understand the gravity of our sin. 
But I also don't believe we understand the intensity of God's love and how much he loves us. And boy, if there's, if there's anything that I can help you really get a handle on as I am attempting to do so myself is to really understand and realize how much it is that God truly loves all of us. So you have this testimony at the beginning of his ministry, the water, the baptism, the testimony at the end of the ministry with the Lord shedding his blood for us, the pronunciation of the Father, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. But think about the miracles that happened during the crucifixion. Think about that. What was one of the miracles during the crucifixion? The land became dark, for starters. It wasn't a big thick cloud, by the way. The land became dark. All right, that, that was the father testifying. I'll let you kind of draw, uh, connect the dots on that one. What else happened during the, the, actually at the death of Jesus? What else happened? You guys remember? The temple, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. What's so significant about top to bottom? Now, they obviously had ladders tall enough to be able to get that thing in place to begin with, Right? But it's symbolic of the fact that God reaches down and reaches the Father reaching in physically and tearing this thing in two, removing the veil and saying because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Actually, Paul even talks about his body, Jesus' body being that veil. The finished work of Jesus Christ that now we do not need someone to go in and intercede before us, but we can boldly go before the throne of grace. I referred to it earlier to find grace and mercy in time of need. Why? Because you are incredibly loved. You're incredibly loved. And I don't understand that. You know, especially with some of you that, well, I'm going to look at the ceiling and I'll refer to my last church, some of them who were not quite so lovely. But we are incredibly loved by God. And, and, and so we have this testimony in the physical, in the material, whether it be the blood and water that came out of the side of Jesus when he had already dismissed his spirit, or it had been the testimony of the water and then the blood at the beginning and then the ending of his ministries. It, it's really hard to say, and, and, and you know, send me an email if you want, but um, I did a lot of digging here. And I, I couldn't come up, really, I, I didn't really foresee anything that, that else that would really explain these things. And, and this is an interesting passage in First John because this little passage, a lot of commentators, they, they get a little unwor- they, less wordy. They become a little less wordy because we don't totally understand. So what do you do when you encounter things that you don't completely know? You don't know certainty. Do you write them off and pretend like they don't exist? I, I know that some, some people do that. I know some of you don't do that. What I've learned to do, and I, I, I don't, I, I'm almost saying I don't want to recommend this, but I think this is the only place where you can really come to terms with passages like this, is that you learn to live in the uncertainty 
You learn to live in the paradox of the unknowing. You learn to live in, well, I can't, don't really have it all figured out. Because I, I, I've done a fair amount of studying of the Bible. It's kind of what I do, right? And yet when you come across these things, sometimes, and, and, and of course, as some guys have said, when you come across those things that you don't understand, lean back on the things that you do understand. And yeah, that's good advice. But sometimes you just have to sit in the tension of paradox. Because the reality is, in my opinion, faith is stretched. Faith is strengthened. Faith is developed in the places of paradox. When you are living your life in times and in situations where you have absolutely no idea and no understanding and, and, and no sense of reconciliation of why these things are happening to you. They just are. And you wish that they would go away. But they don't. And usually if you're like me, then that really kind of makes you mad. And so you pray harder. And what happens? Nothing. And it's like, are you on vacation? I've asked God that. And what I have found in this, guys, is there are times that he is calling us to a deeper faith. Because I've got all kinds of stuff that says about who he is. I know that God loves me. I know that Christ died for me. I know that he demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, that Christ dies for us. But I just wish he would fix this. Or fix that. And yet he calls us to live in tension. Now for some of you who really are in love with the King James Bible, this is going to get even worse for you. Okay? as we go into verse 7 and verse 8. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these things are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. There's a problem with this passage. Some of you understand and you know where I'm going, particularly if you have a different version because it doesn't say that. To make this brief, and I could, I could go on for 30 minutes or more about textual criticism. But I'll just try to make this brief. The New King James, which I believe you have up, and the King James refer to what's called the Texas Receptus, which is a Latin for, word for the received text. It is the, the main manuscript, if not the only Greek manuscript, that they translated the, the King James Bible into. And the King James translates this from the Texas Receptus, otherwise known as the TR. They translate this correctly from those manuscripts. The problem is, is that the Texas Receptus is a later manuscript. 
it goes into about the 13-1400s, actually. It's not the best piece of work we have for translation. All of the other earlier manuscripts, see if I can do this correctly, read like this. For there are three that bear witness, verse 7. And then it omits everything to, until you get into verse 8 where it says the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So where it says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, I love that verse because that's a solid verse on the Trinity. Now I'm a hardcore Trinitarian. But it's not in the early manuscripts. None of them. And, and I made sure so that I don't get out in left field that I went to conservative scholars on this. All right? Those that you would like if you read them. And they all agree that this is probably added later. All right? It wasn't a part of the original text. Although... We have no way of knowing for sure. And I like the fact that it's put in here because it fits well with the context. However, it is probably an addition. And you need to be aware of that when if you're going to use this to try to close the deal on the Trinity. um, If anybody knows anything about textual criticism, you'll get some serious pushback. But here's my thinking on this. This part of the text, which I will refer to as an insertion, I can already tell some of you are already getting uncomfortable here. It's an indicator. By the way, it started first in the uh, um, Latin Vulgate. And it was the Roman Catholic Church who insisted that this was added to Erasmus' work in the 14th century. Okay. So that kind of gives you a little bit more, more background and some things to think about. This insertion is an indicator that the belief in the Trinity is a part of the historic Christian faith. The belief in the Trinity is a part of the historic Christian faith. I would refer you both to the Apostles' Creed and also to the Nicene Creed that I, we, we looked at briefly, what, three, four weeks ago? And, the early, and part of the reason why those creeds were written, they, uh, particularly the Nicene Creed, was written as a response to the Council of Nicaea, and they had to make a statement on what orthodoxy is. Now, orthodoxy is the, is the uh, uh, agreed um, understanding of the Christian faith based on how they interpret the scriptures. And the creeds are nothing more than a boiled down, reduced statements about what the Bible teaches. And as I referred to uh, in, in the Nicene Creed, it refers to Jesus as God of uh, um, God. What's very God of very God? Thank you, very God of very God. Begotten, which means uh, one only and unique, not made. Okay, so. And I like what a couple of commentators wrote about this passage. Admitting that it doesn't, is not found in the early text, but knowing that the Bible teaches throughout the recorded scripture 
that we can trust in the fact that God is the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, I think this passage even implies not only the divinity of Jesus, but it implies the divinity of the Holy Spirit where it tells us in John chapter 5, verse 6, because the Spirit is truth. And Jesus said of himself, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except for by me. And so now we have this declaration. It's, it's changed around a little bit, but we have this declaration also about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is truth. Um, there are several places in the Bible that support the doctrine of the Trinity. So this, this not being in the early manuscripts does not shake that foundation of mine whatsoever. And if it does yours, good. Then we can have a discussion. And we can talk about it. And, and, and because sometimes that sense of uncertainty is an invitation to dig in deeper. And, and to, to give things much greater thought. Um, and then I said to the early creeds support this as well. So it's not there. It does not need to be there. Uh, and I've given you kind of my view on what uh, um, the water and the spirit could possibly represent. Uh, but we also have the spirit of, uh, the, excuse me, the, um, the witness of the spirit. Because we see in the baptism, of course, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove. John tells us in John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, that the spirit descended upon him, it rested upon him, and it stayed upon him. And that's how John understood and identified Jesus as the Messiah. Sometimes when we read in John, we see John looking up and seeing Jesus and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the way I read John chapter 1 is when John put Jesus under the water and then Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit bearing testimony, bearing witness to who Jesus is, the Father speaking. That was, that was the, the, the tell-all clue that John had that, hey, I've got the Messiah right here in front of me. Now, later on, of course, he has some doubts. Uh, but I love that where Jesus answers those questions. We won't take the time to look at that this morning. But Jesus answers John's doubts. Remember when he sends his uh, disciples, are you the Messiah or should we look for another one? And he, J- Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm the Messiah. But what he does is he answers John's question by referring to the works that he had done, which were considered to be works that the Messiah and the Messiah alone would be able to fulfill. So we have the witness of the Spirit. Because what we have here is is not only the witness of the Spirit, but notice in verse 10 it says... um, Excuse me, verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. The witness of God is greater. Where's, where's God in this passage? Where's God in this passage? Well, you have the witness of the water and blood. In other words, basically, John is personifying those things, those things that Jesus did. He's personifying them. So you do have a witness of the Son. You also have the witness of the Spirit here. 
And then, and then in verse 10, uh, verse 9, to the witness of God is greater. That really refers, I believe, he's, he's speaking very Trinitarian here. Witness of the Father, the witness of the Son, and the witness of the Holy Spirit, which he has testified of his Son. Now, again, it's important that when we read this passage, oh my goodness, I'm almost already out of time. Uh, but when we read this passage, we read it in the context of the Gospel of John, where the Gospel of John says, I've ri- I've written, John says in, in chapter 20, I've written these things that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's already told us in John chapter uh, 2 that, uh, that a liar is one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. Uh, he tells us in John chapter 4 that every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And, and so you don't, you don't toss those things out and, and zero in on this and try to make a, a new understanding of what this is saying. John has been coaching us and, and bearing witness to us all along about what the Holy Spirit has told him to write. And that's part of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that not only did he testify of Jesus at the baptism, but he testified of Jesus in Acts chapter 2 and then continues to do the testimony of Jesus all the way through the church age. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, I'm paraphrasing. But I will send a comforter who will teach you all things, and he will remind you of those things that I have said. And so we have this incredible power, uh, powerful witness of the Holy Spirit, not only then in, in when Jesus was here on earth, but as I already mentioned, throughout the entirety of the church age. That this is the witness of the testimony of God. You see, he's equating here the Holy Spirit with God as well. He's not, and again, that's how, how things were written in those days. They didn't make these direct definitive statements as much as they, they, they described them in really a, a much more of a uh, poetic fashion, much more of a literary fashion. You see, we, we, we communicate often as if we just got done reading tech manuals, right? You know what a tech manual is, right? How to do this and how to do that. And, and the Bible is not a tech manual. It was not written as a tech manual. It was written as an incredible piece of literature that is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that is intended to speak to, to minister to, and to prick our hearts and to to draw us unto the Lord and so that we walk in a way that honors him and that our lives become further like who he is. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so, we have the water, we have the blood, and we have the testimony of the Spirit. And he who believes in Jesus, excuse me, verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He says that we have that witness in himself. We, we know that we know. Now, not, not a show of hands here. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Have you ever doubted that maybe none of this is true? Have you ever, because I, well, I'm not going to raise my hand. How's that? All right. But I, I wrestle with these things from time to time, so I will raise my hand. 
And I have to go back to the witness that God has planted in me. And boy, talk about a still, small voice sometimes. And some of you don't ever have these issues, and God bless you, all right? So you can tune out if you want. It's okay. Sometimes I got to go back to that still, small voice. And I have to wait and wait and wait. I love the analogies. It's Elijah when he's running from uh, uh, Jezebel. He's in Mount Horeb. And when he's running, God does not speak to him. And when there's the earthquake, God does not speak to him. And when there's that, the loud whirlwind, God does not speak to him. And it's when he's in the cave in a place of quieting his soul that God begins to speak. He actually has to go outside the cave to hear it. Because that, that is when God speaks. That is, that is the witness, I believe, that John is talking about here. And he who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. And sometimes I'm convinced that God does not speak to me because he's teaching me even more to walk by faith and not by hearing. And I hate it when he does that. I really do. You're with me, aren't you? Okay? And it's like, all right, I'm here. And I'm just going to wait. Because, you see, what Jesus does to me in those moments is he brings me to the point, like at Caesarea Philippi, when they were leaving him left and right because he was saying hard sayings and they didn't want, they didn't understand him and they didn't want to listen to what he had to say. And he turns to his disciples and what does he say to them? Will you also leave me? Peter, one of his finest hours, where else are we to go for you alone have the words of life? Where else are we to go, Lord, because you alone have the words of life. And if I've got to sit here in this dark, cold cave for however long, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait until I hear it. I'm going to wait because I know that the Spirit of God bears witness in me because I have received him. And it's not by works of righteousness which I have done, but because of his mercy that he has saved us. And even in those, those dark nights of the soul type of experience, those are incredibly merciful. If we're willing, if we're willing, willing to walk through them. Or else, you know what happens? We go to the end of the line and we start all over. You know that, don't you? Because I've lived that. But that calling of the witness that lives in us. And then it tells us, and he, uh, he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. So, 
I would hate to stand before God and have this verse showed to me if I did not believe the testimony of God. And it's like, now what are you going to do? Yeah, because then all things are going to be revealed, right? And now what are you going to do? And so it is easy in this day and age, which is really difficult, to get caught up in so many things that are of no eternal consequence or value. And so we need to strive to hear the witness of the Spirit in our hearts and not allow the things of the world to drown out the still, small voice. Because God doesn't often use a sound system. There are times he does. But often he speaks in a whisper. Because that is how he really draws us in and draws us close. Rather than to get caught up in the political scene and the social scene and, and, and your personal scene, stop and listen to the witness of the Spirit that the Spirit of God has planted into your heart. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your work of the Holy Spirit that in times of difficulty that we can trust in you, that we can depend upon you, that we could rest upon you. We thank you for the testimony of the blood and of the water and of the Spirit it tells us that all these things converge and point to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the Messiah, who has come and poured out his life for each of us. Not only, Lord, have you saved us, but you have poured out of your life for us that we might have life and to have it more abundantly. But Lord, we pray that you would give us spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to see that the abundant life is often a whole lot different than what we expect or think or anticipate or feel that we deserve. But your word tells us that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that you've desired for us to walk in that abundance. Because, Lord, although we are people who have sinned severely, we are loved intensely by you. And you are a great God. You are a merciful Savior. Help us to remember 
and help us to further experience the fact that we can trust in you and that we can be confident in you. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your spirit that you've planted in our hearts. We thank you for the eternal life you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for so many blessings that you've given us. We do pray, Lord, for our country. We confess to Lord, that we're a part of another kingdom. So we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys.